here we go. We're going to be going live again. We'll give everybody a few seconds to join us. How are you doing today, Stuart? I'm doing great. The weather's wonderful. Yeah, it's a little hot, actually. Well, I'm surprised. Yeah, global warming in effect. So. It's time to go sailing. Time to go sailing. Well, okay. And you're dressed good. for it. So. I'm dressed for sailing. Yeah, That's good. Let's I'm, do it. I'm getting over a cold, so my n voice is somewhat back to normal. For like the second or third week in a row, but <laughs> I, I, can't, I, don't, I don't keep count anymore. It's been bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah I your know. Your immune system's kind of weak. I so. know. I haven't been able to kiss anybody for quite a while. Oh, so. well, that's actually a good thing. I know. Lucky them. Yes. Lucky everyone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Why don't we get started? Welcome to the Stand, Fight, Win live stream, Real Lawyers, Real Answers. The topic today is marital rights. So we're going to learn and discuss what rights married people have when it comes to passing an estate or an inheritance. And there's a lot of confusion, I think, in that realm in terms of uh, what married people have the right to do and what they don't have the right to do. And so why don't we start off by going over our case, and this will be our breaking news segment. And we're going to talk about a case that is not necessarily breaking news. It was decided back in 2014, but it's a very good case. And it's called Lintz v. Lintz, L-I-N-T-Z, Lintz v. Lintz. And the uh, site for it is 222 Calap 4th, 1346. That's 222 Calap 4th, 1346. So this is an interesting case. And Stuart, you are very familiar with this case. I'm very familiar with this case. We were kind of excited to see it back when it came out. And it has to do with can one spouse unduly influence another spouse in order to get money as part of an inheritance? And there's a little bit of an issue there, right? So a lot of times people will come in and say, well, husband unduly influenced wife or wife unduly influenced husband. And what usually is the, the thought that you give when somebody says that one spouse unduly influenced the other? What thought comes to your mind? Well, I'm not going to be politically correct here. I think that... Nobody expects you to. I think that in marriages uh, that are longer than 10 years, I think that I've seen evidence, that empirical evidence that leads me to believe <laughs> that most wives unduly influence their husbands on a daily matter and the husbands say, aye, aye. Oh, okay. uh, in younger relationships, you don't see that as much. I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying that's what I have viewed. And so we tend to see that women make more of the decisions later on in the relationship. And that makes sense because let's be mean to the men now. We kind of revert to our teenage years as we get older. Sometimes we need someone to help us out with our thought processes. And, and so we're seeing that. Now, that's totally incorrect for me to say that. I hope I'm not offending anybody. I'm not attempting to offend anybody. I'm just saying I think that spouses, and I see more of the female spouses than the male spouses do this, although male spouses do it too, they do things that certainly influence their spouse on a daily basis and even unduly influence their spouse on a daily basis where they get their spouse to do something the spouse wouldn't do but for the one spouse asking them to do it. And that's a fine line, isn't it? By the way, you can send your complaints to Stuart at aldevla.com. Um, it's a fine line, isn't it? Because people influence each other all the time. Husbands influence wives, wives influence husbands. And that isn't necessarily illegal, and it's not undue. It can even be very heavy influence. That doesn't necessarily make it undue. But in Lentz v. Lentz, we have a case where it did go a little too far. And you can tell that this was a difficult uh, marriage situation because in the facts, it actually says that uh, this was their, the defendant's uh, third marriage, and they were, uh, or the decedent's third marriage, and they were married, divorced six months later, and then remarried. So that's not looking good in terms of being a stable relationship, right? And so as husbands started to decline in health, all of a sudden there started to be amendments to the trust, and there was many amendments between 2005, 2008, 
to the point where the last amendment left it all the wife right. and disinherited the, the husband's kids. So there's a number of different issues that the court looked at. One of them was capacity, which isn't a huge issue uh, for us. We, you know, we, we have a lot of capacity, lack of capacity cases, although they're hard to prove. The thing that I found interesting in this case when it comes to capacity, though, Stuart, is the court talked about a case that's near and dear to our heart. Anderson v. Hunt. Anderson v. Hunt. And 2011 finding. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, the uh, Anderson v. Hunt, if you want to look it up, 196 Calop 4th, 722. 196 Calop 4th, 722. Anderson v. Hunt, 2011. And Anderson v. Hunt said for the first time, and it, it said it at... And incorrectly so. <laughs> in our opinion. It also said it at a very inopportune time for us. <laughs> But it's said for the first time that the capacity required to amend a trust is the same as the capacity needed to make a will, which is a lower level of capacity, if um, the trust instrument was something simple. Simple versus complex, which, man, those are so easy to define. <laughs> yeah, who knows what's simple, who what's knows complex what's complex. What's a complex trust amendment and what's a simple trust amendment? And let me ask you this, Keith, and not to get off, off track here, but on Anderson versus Hunt, where the court, in its infinite wisdom, for the first time says that we're going to look at capacity on a trust amendment and we're going to use testamentary capacity under probate code 6100.5. Let me ask you, if I went and amended a will, which we call a codicil to a will, yes, is there something specific I have to do from a formality standpoint that I would not be required to do for a simple trust amendment? Yeah, you have to have two witnesses that have to sit there and sign and look, see you sign the document. And that's for a will. That's for a will, but, but not for a trust. But they're going to use the same lowered standard of testamentary capacity versus legal capacity. Right. So they're going to say, oh, for simple, quote unquote, whatever simple means, trust amendments, uh, we're going to have... Uh, testamentary capacity, but there's no two witness requirement. Right. And that two witness requirement is important because it backstops that lower level of capacity standard. I mean, it's a, a little bit of a safeguard that trusts don't have. So, But the court said you can do that. Now, this court, Lentz v. Lentz, said in this case where you were doing a complete restatement of the trust, Anderson doesn't apply. You have to use the higher contract capacity because the trust instruments were unquestionably more complex than a will or a codicil. Okay, so that leads me to my next complaint about Anderson versus Hunt. And I know you want to talk about Lentz v. Lentz, but Anderson versus Hunt <laughs> is problematic on various levels. Yeah. And one of those is, is that even in a quote-unquote simple trust amendment, which I'm assuming the court meant in Anderson versus Hunt, I'm changing somebody from 30% to 25% Just of the Just the ultimate distribution. Yeah, it, not yeah. doing a whole lot more. But there's always this not always, but generally a good drafting attorney is going to include at the end of an amendment, I hereby republish and affirm my previous trust in full. And how many pages is that previous trust? Let's call it 50 pages. It's usually long, right? So yeah. it, does that mean that's no longer a simple trust amendment? Because at that moment in time when you're signing, when you're probably demented at that point in time, how can you have the lower standard of capacity, testamentary capacity versus legal capacity, if you're reaffirming the entire original trust? Because you'd have to understand the entire original trust to reaffirm it in theory. And so, yeah, that's the problem with Anderson v. Hunt is that nobody knows what a simple versus complex trust amendment is. And so if you go in to do a trust amendment to an estate planning attorney, how would they even know if you have the necessary capacity to do it? 
because they don't know what capacity standard they're using. Right. And so, yeah, it's 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 crazy. And, and the last thought I have is that if I were doing state planning still and I was doing a simple trust amendment, I would get two witnesses to sign it. Yeah. Even though the right. trust terms don't call for it. But right. enough about Anderson versus Hunt, <laughs> which I obviously have a little bit of passion for, but go yeah. ahead with your Lentz versus Lentz analysis. Okay. So when it comes to undue influence on Lentz v. Lentz, the court here really does something interesting, which is it looks at Family Code Section 721. And Family Code Section 721 imposes a duty of the highest good faith and fair dealing on each spouse. And so the court's saying, well, look, spouses have fiduciary duties for one another, meaning they have to do what's right for the other spouse and put their interests above their own. And when you're dealing with a spouse who has a lot of separate property, which was the case here, the husband had a lot of separate property, the wife didn't, and the wife is not only spending his separate property during his lifetime, but also was creating these amendments so she can get the rest of the property after her death. And it didn't do anything to benefit the husband. It was just benefiting the wife. So really what the court says is this presumption should have been applied. Uh, there should be a presumption of undue influence. So in other words, because the, there's this fiduciary duty between spouses, anytime one spouse does something that uh, improves his or her position favorably uh, to the detriment of the other spouse, there's a presumption of undue influence. That means that the spouse would then have to prove that there was no undue influence. And, and keep in mind, Lentz versus Lentz was decided in 2014. And prior to this decision, and prior to us reading this decision, we would have people call us uh, beneficiaries uh, of a mom or a, let's call it a dad, a dad that's passed away that was married to a stepmom under very similar circumstances to Lentz. And we would tell them, look, we're sorry, we can't take your case because these are just too difficult. The court's gonna side with the, the spouse. They generally do. They, they will side with the spouse over children in most cases, unless you can show something really egregious. And Lentz versus Lentz comes along. And while these cases are still difficult against the surviving second or third or fourth spouse, we now have this presumption and that's beautiful. So let's walk through that a little bit more. And I think it depends on the underlying factual scenario. So let's take an example where let's say, let's say a, two people are older in life. Let's say the, the husband's 70 and the wife's 65 and they get married and they're only married two years. And let's say the husband has substantial separate property and a new trust is created and it disinherits the kids, leaves everything to wife. And then a month later, husband dies. Do you think that that has a ring of undue influence in it, in your mind? It depends. <laughs> it depends. I mean, it could be the most wonderful relationship of two people that got together not knowing that husband was going to pass away. We can't use hindsight on that. They had a wonderful marriage. Everyone will testify they had a wonderful marriage. She adored him. He adored her. And the two years was the best two years of his life. And they and, uh, you know, anticipated traveling together. I mean, you, know, you could have all kinds of facts that would support a fantastic relationship. You could also have a bunch of facts where, you know, they weren't close and she was out seeing other people. And even though that probably technically isn't supposed to come into the case, if she was out cheating on him and not a good spouse and ended up favoring herself in a very short period of time, I think that raises some questions. Yeah, and I think that's going to probably be a little bit more suspicious versus let's say you have a marriage of 30 years. And let's say five years before husband dies, there is a change to the estate plan that favors the spouse. I mean, it's, it's a whole different ballgame. Those are still cases we probably won't take. 
just because yeah, you're married for 30 years, whether it's a good marriage or bad marriage, and there's some good ones out there, there's some bad ones out there, but they've chosen to stay together for 30 years, they've made that choice. Right. And if they leave everything to the surviving spouse, well, the court's going to say, hey, that's what most people do. I don't have a problem following through with that. And the other thing I think that hurt the spouse in Lens v. Lens is she was spending a lot of the husband's separate property while he was still alive. And I think for whatever reason, the court just found that to be something that was improper. And so I think it really depends on the underlying circumstances of these cases. But in theory, you can have a presumption of undue influence where one, when one spouse gains an advantage over the other one, you know, there might be a presumption of undue influence. I'm just, I would caution people, don't assume that that's going to be the true in your case. Just because a spouse gets something doesn't automatically mean that there's going to be a presumption. Well, and let's just say for lens versus lens cases, I think your case that is going to fall into these four corners of this uh, opinion are going to be shorter term marriages mm-hmm. and they're going to be blended families. And it's going to be where the husband, that the deceased substantial spouse, changes to the estate plan either had a lot of separate property coming into it mm-hmm. or you know there's some type of uh, person coming in that doesn't have a lot of property and they end up with a lot at the end of the day if it's a blended family short-term marriage it's worth looking into right right uh, there's one other small issue that Lentz v. Lentz covers that I always find helpful which is that it really has a nice section talking about how undue influence can be proven by circumstantial evidence I think that's important just because you don't you rarely have direct evidence of undue influence the person who was unduly influenced is deceased and the person who did the undue influencing uh, isn't going to come forward and say yep I, I unduly influenced him I coerced him and so usually it is going to be circumstantial evidence that you're going to find so facts of isolation controlling food controlling medicine cutting an elder off from their family or friends uh, manipulating their finances. These are all the, the kind of circumstantial things that you're looking for in these types of cases. That, that's right. And, and by the way, when young lawyers or even older lawyers are mediating these kind of cases, uh, undue influence cases, not just Lens versus Lens, but any case dealing with undue influence, uh, the mediator and even a judge at the time of trial is going to ask you, yeah, but what evidence do you have that this undue influence take pl- took place. And it's a hard question at first if you haven't really buried yourself in these cases because there isn't direct evidence generally of these types of behaviors. And so what you have to do is step back from the case and you have to pull together all the circumstances. It's a totality of circumstances analysis. You're looking at the age of the individuals you pointed out. Are they ill? And, and, and the statute here, it comes from the financial, um, what is it, the Financial Elder Abuse Act, and that is under one Five six ten seventy, I believe. Is that the right? Welfare and Institutions Code? I'm sorry. Yes. What, what, what is the uh, provision where it defines undue influence? I think it's one five six ten seventy. Yes, that's right. Okay, of the Welfare so, and Institutions Code. So it's one five six ten point seventy. And if you actually go to that statute, you'll see the definition of what undue influence is in the first paragraph, and then they're going to break down the four categories that they're going to look at. Mm-hmm. And that's that circumstantial evidence that you need to look to, and you need to pull together in your cases, and you get that from medical records. You get it from the estate planning lawyer's file, and you get it from third-party witnesses. And by the Friends, way, family, Are third-party witnesses valuable in these kind of cases? So valuable. Probably, in fact, third-party, if you have a friend or a neighbor, somebody who's not going to get anything in the estate, and they can come in and say, oh, I saw the whole thing. You know, this is what was going on. Those witnesses are invaluable. They're way more valuable than expert witnesses. And especially if that person has no connection with you as the person yes. making those claims. Yes, if they're independent, they're not going to benefit from the estate. They're just going to come in and testify. They're fantastic. I, I recently uh, did a mediation with a judge that we admire very much, and he was explaining to me some of these issues on undue influence. And he said that in these cases, 
whoever has a, a dog in the hunt, whoever's going to end up with getting something, he gives them very little credibility in their testimony. Right. Even if they sound good, he gives them very little credibility because they have so much to gain. Right. So he says, give me those third-party witnesses, and we have a different story. And the other thing that is not circumstantial evidence is a lot of times people will say, I know that my mother would never do this. I know that my grandmother would never do this. That in and of itself is not evidence of anything. You, you know, Like you said, you got to look at the statute. It requires susceptibility to undue influence, the actions and tactics of the wrongdoer. I mean, these are things that you have to go out and find for evidence for your case. But coming in and saying, I know that my mother would never disinherit me, it's not going to get you too far. Yeah, and let me give you, uh, you know, some people, when I was younger, I used to have a hard time putting concrete facts on what undue influence is. I can give you a small example, and that is in a Lentz v. Lentz uh, hypothetical, you've got a second or third wife and it now married to the husband. Uh, the husband in this case has two or three kids, mm -hmm. and he has significant wealth. And in his current trust, he's giving the, the bulk of that wealth to his kids. And the wife comes in and starts... You know, many people view undue influence as some kind of a mean, kind of a duress. Somebody's holding a gun up to you. No, many times it's the wife coming into the husband who's in a in a bed, maybe saying, "Why aren't your kids here? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, they must not care about you. This mm -hmm. is awful. Here, let me take care of you." And it goes on. So it's a progression. It happens over time, and slowly but surely, the will is poisoned, and then the husband becomes frustrated because, sure enough, his kids aren't there, and. Older people, in my opinion, again, I'm going to get in trouble for this, they tend to fear that people are going to take their assets. Mm -hmm. And you and I will be there one day. We're going to fear that somebody's going to, Kayla, Manisha, as you guys get these older. These young people. You're, yeah. yeah, these young people. It's all they yeah. want is my assets. Mm -hmm. And so there's already that fear that's innate in all of us. And now this person's flaming, uh, getting they're, that. Yeah, and they're also afraid that nobody will take care of them. Yes, and here that person is that they rely on day in and day out for whatever care they're right. receiving. Yeah, so so it happens that way. It usually happens over a period of time. It's not written down. It's very circumstantial. It is not something that you can point to and say this is where it happened. Yeah, that one thing. No, it's it's a yeah. It's it's been described as uh, what death by a thousand cuts. So that's kind of what it comes down to. And some judges would say you trying to prove a case of undue influence is also a death by a thousand. <laughs> yeah, they're tough cases. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. But yeah. So, um, all right. So I guess the takeaway from Lentz v. Lentz is you can have undue influence between spouses. You could even have a presumption of it, undue influence. Spices. Did Spice. I say spices? It's spices. No, it's spice. spices. It can't be spouses. Oh, spices. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Spouse. And... Uh, you can have a presumption of undue influence between spices. Thank you. But um, you don't say mouses. No, I, I, I don't. You say mice. I, I don't care about mice. Okay, I'm just saying if we're going to be correct. Mooses. <laughs> yeah, I think mooses would be meese. <laughs> Mises. Okay. Well, whether they're meeses, mices, or spices, there can be a presumption of undue influence, but it's still hard, very hard case. By the way, this is literally what happens 24 hours a day when the camera goes off. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. we think it's entertaining. You may not, but yeah, it, it's exciting. You, you shouldn't. <laughs> so let's go to our Ask and Answered segment and see if we can answer some questions that might flesh these issues out. It's flesh, not flush. It's flesh. Fleshes? Yeah. Fleshes these issues yeah, out. Yeah, let's fleshes it. Okay. Is that a bird? I don't know. You're making me tired. All right. <laughs> I need a nap. Kayla's back. <laughs> Kayla, Kayla there she is. Where'd you go? <laughs> I'm here to interrupt that fun you guys were just having. Okay. Weren't you on a, a trip and went across the United States or something? Did you see any Mises while you were out there? I didn't see any Mises or Moose. Okay. By the way, I'm from Alaska. Nobody says Mises. <laughs> <laughs> There's multiple. 
Are just the moose. moose. Just the moose. moose are nice in Alaska. You can walk up and just no, pet them, right? Oh, no. They trample people. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I did see some elk, though. We went to Yellowstone. and oh, cool. Um, yeah, that was cool. Yeah, those are big. Uh, so our first question today is, does my half of the marital property have to go to the surviving spouse? Ooh. Does it? You better be nice. It depends. It depends. I mean... It, it doesn't depend. It, yeah, no, it doesn't. So, I mean, if I'm married, which I am, uh, my half of the community property, I can leave it to whomever I like. That's right. I can leave it to my law partner. Good idea. But I can leave it to whomever I like, and I can exclude my spouse. And, you know, and same thing with any of my separate property. So my separate property can go away from my spouse as well. There's going to be one exception to that, which is going to be a family allowance. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But in terms of who owns the property, I can give away half my property to anybody I want. Think about that, though. I mean, your your spouse dies, and all of a sudden, half your house goes to somebody else. I mean, that's got to be a shocker. It, yes, yes. <laughs> that would yes. be shocking. Yeah, no, that, that is very surprising for people to find out that even in a 30-, 40-year marriage, yeah, that one half of the community of yours can yeah. go whoever. Like, my wife passes away, and half my house goes to the yoga instructor? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but it can, you know, the spouses are allowed to do that, and it's it's uh, it is a bit of a shocker. Now, family allowance. Let's make a quick pit stop there. You, so if you're married in California, you don't have to leave your half of the community to your spouse. You can't leave their half of the community though. So the other half of the community, you can't just give that away or give it away to somebody. That belongs to your spouse. They get to keep at least half of those assets. However. You're not allowed to leave your spouse or children destitute. And so there is something called a family allowance where under the probate code, the court can order some amount of money. Uh, it's like a support payment that goes to the spouse or the children. It's usually for a limited amount of time to let the family members get up on their feet and get on to whatever they need to do to support themselves. It's not a right to property. It's not a right to a portion of the estate. But it is kind of a support payment that you can apply for. Yes. And let's change up uh, the, your analysis. Let's go to Lentz versus Lentz. If this guy had community property, significant community property with his spouse in Lentz, let's say they've been married 30 years and they own a you know, $5 million asset and it's community property. And under the Lentz versus Lentz analysis, wife gets husband to sign a transmutation of his community property interest and give it to her, making it all her separate property, then he passes away. Do we have a Lentz versus Lentz situation? Yeah, I think so, because I think what you've done is the spouse has benefited herself by making something separate property and essentially securing the whole property for herself, because husband may have wanted to give it to his children or to charity or whatever, and you took that right away. Let me give you a harder hypothetical. Wife is smart. She's savvy. She understands. She read Lens versus Lens last night as she Googled it <laughs> on how to take money away from a spouse and not be caught. Uh, she decides, you know what? I'm not going to have him do a transmutation because that looks too fishy. I'm going to have him sign a joint tenancy deed. I mean, technically, that's still going to be a Lens v. Lens issue, no doubt. I think it's going to be harder. And I think the reason why it's going to be harder is, technically speaking, with joint tenancy deeds you didn't take anything away from husband during life. Whereas when you do a transmutation, you literally are taking their half of the community away from them during life. Right. And I think that's what, what got the spouse in trouble in Lins v. Lins is that she did things during life. Right. I think a court's not going to be as inclined to overturn a joint tenancy deed 
because during life they each owned half. You didn't take anything away from husband. It was only at death that it took effect. So in theory, it would still be a lens be lens situation, but I think it'd be harder in, practic- in practice. Wife would not be stopped. She continues her Google search and she realizes that the transmutation is not a good idea. It looks a little too fishy. Joint tenancy, it's a good argument, but there's a better way to title this, and that's community property with the right of survivorship. How about that one? Is that a Lynch versus Lynch situation? Again, I think that makes it even harder because I think the argument's going to be, I didn't change the community property nature of this. It's just that he wanted to leave it to me. And I, I thought you were going to go with, and this is I think would be just as hard, let's put it into a trust, and under the trust it says that that's my asset upon your death. I think it's the same difference. I mean... I think it becomes much harder to dislodge something like that because right. the court's going to say, well, you didn't really change the property interest while husband was alive. Right. You didn't disfavor him while he was alive. It just affected where it went after his death. And if you've been married 30 years, right. one assumes that it probably wants to go to the spouse. Right. I don't know. Right. No, I, I'm with you on all that. And I would say in, in, in a shorter marriage situation, if wife really wanted to, if, and I'm talking about a nefarious person here, so if they really wanted to be nefarious, what they would do is they would essentially either do it by way of a trust, do it by way of a joint tenancy or community property with right of survivorship, or get one half of it, which they're entitled to possibly, and then get a life estate in the other half. Yeah, and that's what you could do under a trust. So you could create a trust and then wife gets her half and then the other half's held in a marital trust for her benefit. And she's trustee of that marital trust. She effectively has the whole house. She controls it. She's trustee of it. But she hasn't taken it away from the ultimate beneficiaries, which can still be the children. And that's a good, that's just good estate planning, actually, because it right. protects the kids, it protects the spouse. Right. But. And if she's 30 and the kids are 30. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be waiting a while. So, and the only reason we, we bring up these hypotheticals is because this is what we see. We see this type of planning happening yeah. around California. Yeah, it's willy nilly yeah. and it's a mess. What's our next question, Kayla? If my spouse leaves his half of our house to his children, my stepchildren, can I be displaced? What do you think? Well, that's a good question. And so it has to come down to timing. And that is, when is the gift being made? Is it being made right at his death? And if so, the kids step into his shoes. They get that asset. They can do a partition action if she refuses to sell it. Boom, she's out. She's out. Now, you did raise an interesting issue and that's family allowance could you possibly petition the probate court uh, and ask the probate court for some time mm-hmm. um, you know I think you could I think it'd be limited but I think you be could. limited but ultimately yeah and, and like you said this is a, this is a real surprise to the surviving spouses out there if they have a deceased spouse that you know this is an awful thing to do in my opinion mm-hmm. not tell your spouse without yeah. knowing more facts about your marriage but not tell your spouse that you're giving away your one half to you, your children who are the mm-hmm. stepchildren uh, and unfortunately, those stepchildren are going to have rights to the one half of that asset. As owners. As owners. If you give it outright. So the other thing is, if you gave it in trust, where it stays in a marital trust for the wife's lifetime, and then it goes to the children, whole different ballgame. Now yes. the spouse can stay in her home. You're not dislodging her. The That's kids right. get the interest after she's gone. Much better way to go. But yeah, if you just give half your house to your kids right day one, as soon as husband dies or wife dies. Right. Spouse is done right. unless they get along with the right. stepchildren. And by the way, we see this from time to time too. We see a spouse, the surviving spouse, before the deceased spouse has passed, passes away. There's usually some type of mental incapacity or injury or something. Somehow or another, they find the trust in the house and they see what's happened. What's the first thing they do? They call up a, 
estate planning attorney who's willing to take $1,500 to come over to the hospital. Quick amendment. Quick amendment, <laughs> and now everything's going to the spouse. So we see that happening too. And I wouldn't necessarily say that that surviving spouse doing those things is an evil person. This is a person that's, that's dealing with a real issue where they're thinking, I'm going to lose half of my house. Well, what would you do to keep half of your house? So these aren't evil people. It's not right what, what's happened, and it can be hopefully corrected with some litigation, but I understand why people do these things. Well, it's so much easier if you have other assets. If you have a house plus stocks and you can say, hey, let's give uh, husband's kids the stocks and I'll keep the house and that way I'm not disrupted. Hey, great. Right. But a lot of times when you have these estates where a house is a major asset and it's the most valuable asset, it's tough. And you know, if you lived in a house for 30 years, you don't wanna just get kicked out, especially if you're older. That, that's got to be terrifying. It, terrifying, absolutely. All right, Kayla. My husband has a mistress. Is it possible <laughs> that he could leave half of our house to her? Oh, boy. It is possible. Yeah. Maybe probable. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Now, I had a case years ago where a wife left the house, we thought, to her husband, but they were separated, uh, but they weren't technically divorced. Turns out she had a handwritten will leaving the house to yoga instructor. And we thought, well, that's weird. Why yoga instructor? Until they came in the office. He's young. He's handsome. He's wearing one of those puka shell necklaces because he's got the shirt down like that. And I'm like, I get it. Like, I'd leave half the house to, to yoga instructor. And I'm, you know, I'm married to a woman. But... <laughs> Like, I get it. I get it. It's a guy. I, I don't have a response, but go ahead. I'm just saying. Okay. Some people are attractive. <laughs> right. It's not my fault. Okay. <laughs> if I notice. In any event, it was a shocker. And so these things can happen. And unfortunately, because each spouse has the right to give away their half of the community, right. you could wake up you know, one day and your spouse is gone and your the mistress owns half the house. That's a possibility. So not only the insult of finding out that one half of your house is gone, but it's going to a mistress. I mean, again, this is this, this person who this deceased spouse is despicable in my opinion. Yeah. This is not good behavior. No. The manners are poor. Um, but well, it's kind of it reminds me of these cases where you know the, the, a guy dies and he's living like two different lives. He oh. has two different families in two different cities or something. It's yeah. like. First of all, how did he get away with that, and how do you have the energy to even do that? Yeah. It sounds exhausting to me. Yeah. I wouldn't even want to do that. But but it, it is a terrible result. And so what do you do about it? I mean, if you're a spouse and you're worried that this is going to happen, what would you do? You, you look, Well, you make sure that you know what the trust says. and you uh, Number one, you create a trust yeah. then. Yeah. You, you work with your spouse on the, your, your estate plan, and then you look for facts of undue influence or lack of capacity for anything that changes that estate plan. Right. And if you can't find them, it's tough. You know, now I think about it, I used to teach, when we back when we taught Trusts and Wills at Chapman Law School, uh, we used to go over this case, and it was Charles Kuralt. Mm, I he, remember that. He left his ranch in Montana to his mistress right. using a uh, holographic will. It was a letter right. that he wrote. And it wasn't part of his regular estate plan because apparently it'd be a little embarrassing to sit down with your wife and your estate planning alert attorney and explain to them that, well, I want to leave the ranch in Montana to my mistress. That probably wouldn't go so well in a meeting. So he did it on a holographic will, and it was enforced. The mistress actually got the ranch in Montana. Now, he was very wealthy, so the spouse obviously had other assets. Was he a journalist? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he used to go around the country, you know, Charles Corral. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember that case. The Sunday morning. Yeah. uh, Yeah. 
Leaves, you know, and, and if that person wants to leave their legacy that they've done that, well, that's what he's going to remember for in my mind. It's a very so. uh, popular case in yeah. the law school class. So <laughs> it's always entertaining. All right, Kayla. My spouse and I purchased a property together, but it was put solely in their name. I made payments on the property and paid for repairs. I just found out that the house was placed in a trust to give to someone else. What can I do? And I guess based on that hypothetical, the husband has passed away. Yes. Or soon will pass away now that the wife knows this. Yes. Um, so uh, this is a tough case, although this has to do with what we call tracing. And so what funds were used to purchase the house? It's not so much what title is on the house. Was it community property funds that were used to purchase the home? Or was it separate property funds? And I'm going to assume that it was community property funds. She also has stated that she continued to make payments on the mortgage, payments on the taxes, payments on repairs and upkeep for the home. Those would also be community property assets. So absent a marital uh, agreement uh, of some type or absent uh, separate property being proven, I think it's going to be presumed to be community property. There's always presumption of that. Well, if, it's, if it was purchased during the marriage. So if it's pur purchased yes. during the marriage, the presumption is it starts its life as community property. Correct. And that was my presumption about the presumption. And so I'm going to presume that this person can prove up that this is community property. And it's interesting, too, because you'll have these situations where the house is purchased during the marriage, but maybe it's only purchased in one spouse's name for credit reasons or who knows why. Um, so does that, purchasing it in one spouse's name, does that make it separate property? It does not, because the transmutation has to be expressed and clear. The transmutation being, I'm taking my community property and I'm changing its character to separate property and giving it to you. It needs to be, and I understand that I'm doing that, I mean, it needs to be clear to be a transmutation. Just simply title is not enough. And a lot of times these finance companies will make the spouse who's not going to own the property sign a quick claim deed, saying I hereby quick claim my interest to my spouse as her separate property. Not enough. But that even isn't necessarily enough because it's not a declaration that I understand I'm transmuting this. So now you have a piece of property that's community property, you're entitled to half. Yes. You're going to get half. In that type of a case that Kayla just asked, it's the person that's alleging separate property that's going to have to meet a burden of proof in that case. Right. And they're going to have to overcome the community presumption and then they're going to have to prove it's separate property. Right. I think that's my estimation of it. Yeah, I agree. How can I protect myself from losing half the interest in my house? I think it starts with a good estate plan using a trust. And so I think you and your spouse need to meet with an estate planning lawyer and put together a good solid estate plan. And then you need to make sure your house is titled in the name of the trust so the trust controls that house. And if you have a trust document with a plan of how it's going to go, and it's fine if you know, your spouse's children are going to get something out of the trust after you're gone or, or whatever. Or even as soon as your spouse dies, if they're going to get something. But at least plan it out and talk about it. I think where people go wrong is when they don't have any plan at all. So like you said, if they own their property as community, if, if I own my property as husband and wife as community property, but no right of survivorship, well, now... Uh, my spouse could do a will and leave it to somebody else. They could do their own trust and leave it to somebody else. Any number of things can go wrong with that. Yeah, I'm actually glad you brought that up because uh, we talked earlier about a deed, a titling known as community property with right of survivorship, which is really a joint tenancy between two spouses, right? Or right. spices. Spices, we're, we're yeah. Stick with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I don't want to mislead anybody that if you have 
owned as husband and wife community property, that that is what's going to happen. That's just simply a 50-50 ownership. Right. That's like owning tenants in common. Yes. And so you want to be careful if you're looking at the deed of your house and you want to make sure that you're going to get it if your husband passes away and you're the surviving spouse, uh, you're going to want to see either joint tenancy, those are the magic words, or with right of survivorship. Community after. property with right of survivorship. That's right. and not just Or in a, a trust. Or in a trust, and then the trust can describe what happens to the property. I mean, I think the trust is the best way to go, but certainly if you at least... The problem with having it just in joint tenancy with right of survivorship or community property with right of survivorship is either party has the right to break that just by filing another deed. So even like if you and I were joint tenants on a property, I could break that by deeding it to my half to myself and tenants in common. Well, let me ask you this. What if you went ahead and you gave me, let's say with you and Christy, you uh, owned everything with, uh, with community property, right of survivorship on your house, and then you gave me a deed a week before you died. I didn't have time to record it for whatever reasons but I recorded it a day after your death. Is that sufficient to break that uh, joint tenancy? Yeah, I think it would be because with a deed, a deed doesn't have to be recorded to be valid. It just has to be signed, notarized, and delivered. And if I gave it to you, that's delivery. What if you gave it to me 10 years earlier and then you pass away? Is it still going to be valid if I didn't record it? Yes. Yes. Now, you may not have a right superior to like a mortgage that's recorded or something like that, but the recording doesn't necessarily negate the deed. The deed can still be valid. And so that's why the community property titling, even with right of survivorship, has a few holes in it. Whereas if we put it in the trust, and if Christy and I are co-trustees, then it, you need the signature of both co-trustees to take it out of the trust in theory. And so it, that can't be done as easily unilaterally. And I think what you're getting to there is that in most trusts, the amendment provision where you can amend a trust, it's going to be a joint writing right. for a community property yeah. to, to amend. Yeah. But you can amend to your separate property by yourself all day long. That's right, yeah. Because if I own something in, in, you said community property with the right of survivorship, I have the right as a joint owner to just do my own deed without telling my wife and, and delivering it. And that's a perfectly valid deed. In a trust, it's different because in a trust, you would, in theory, require two signatures. The spouse would have to know about it. Right. It's just a safer way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any other questions, Kayla? One more question from Facebook. So thank you for submitting your questions to us. The question is, my father or my stepfather is attempting to break an irrevocable trust to favor his biological son. He is about to sell property that was granted to me. Will the funds from the sale of the property remain with the bypass trust? Well, that's a loaded question. Um, so essentially what's happening here, Keith, is we see that a person feels that they have a property that's in a bypass trust. So there's an original trust that was split off into two separate subtrusts at the death of the mom, presumably here. Some property was put in the bypass trust, which is an irrevocable trust, assuming the surviving spouse gets interest from that and so forth, but they can't, they're not supposed to, to get access to the principal in there. And then the survivor has their own trust. They can do whatever they want with that. Mm -hmm. The concern here is that dad is trying to break the trust. And I'm guessing he's doing that by way of court because that's the only way I can think of to break an irrevocable trust would be by going to court and getting the court's permission to do that. Well, you're thinking of the only proper way to break an irrevocable trust. Well, that's correct? true. That's true. <laughs> now, yeah, I think because if the bypass trust owns a real property or even half of a real property or some portion of a real property, you can go ahead and sell that property. That's not a problem. But the percentage of, of the ownership of the bypass trust, has they have to receive their share of the proceeds. 
So if the bypass trust owns half a house, you sell a house for a million dollars, the bypass trust should receive $500,000. And is that going to happen in most cases? Uh, it depends on how good the trustee is. The trustee is a surviving spouse. Is, this, is the surviving spouse going to follow the terms of the trust and do the right thing, or are they going to do the wrong thing? If they do the right thing and follow the terms of the trust, then yeah, what they would do is open a bank account or a, a brokerage account for the bypass trust, put the $500,000 in there, work with a financial planner to make sure it's properly invested. Maybe the surviving spouse gets the income off of that during their lifetime and then the rest goes to the child. That'd be the right way to do it. Unfortunately, what we see a lot of times is the house sells, the money gets moved over to the survivor's trust or to some other bank account that the surviving spouse owns and the bypass trust is just like an afterthought, like it never happened. And then it's up to the children to have to decide what are you gonna do about it? And there are- And when are you gonna do something about it? Yeah, what are you gonna do about it and when are you gonna do it? And so the what, what are you gonna do about it? You can recreate that. You can go back and claw the assets back into the bypass trust. Uh, if you follow the trust terms, that's where it's supposed to be. And so that requires court action. You're gonna have to file a lawsuit. And then the question is, when are you going to do that action, if that's what you need to do? And you have some pretty good thoughts about when. Well, it, the when depends on the age of the surviving spouse. If the surviving spouse is elderly, and chances are they're not going to be around all, all that much longer, and this is kind of a, a dreary way of looking at life, but if they're not going to be around <laughs> that longer, it's better, in my opinion, in most cases, to wait and then once they've passed on, you can attack their survivor's trust or any other assets they have. And why wait? Because uh, you may be a beneficiary of their trust, of the, the survivor's, survivor's trust, yeah. yes. Yeah, so I think it's better to let the, you know, go after that after they've passed away. Because you never know, you might get a windfall. Even, we've seen it where even that surviving spouse didn't like their husband's kids, but because the trust was drafted back in, you know, 2010, with everything going to the kids equally, they left it. Maybe they left it out of honor. Maybe they just didn't get around to making an amendment. They'll definitely make an amendment if you come after them. So if you sue while the spouse is still alive, your concern is they're gonna go and amend the survivor's trust and cut you out. Correct. Now what if you're already cut out of the survivor's if trust? If you know that for certain, then there would be no reason not to just move forward and say- Take action and Say, hey, I wanna get that property back. Keep in mind though, the courts are gonna be sympathetic to the survivor, surviving spouse and there may also be a provision in the survivor's trust or in the bypass trust that says that mom can invade the principle of this trust for need. Well, she's going to go to a lawyer and say, what do I need to create need so that I can start drawing down the principle of this trust? So don't motivate mom, stepmom in this case, to start drawing down that trust. So in most cases, it's better to wait until mom passes away. But if mom is 30 years old and you're 30 years old as a beneficiary, you may need to move forward. So you kind of need to monitor the situation, see if the money in fact stays with the bypass trust, which is what's supposed to happen, the proceeds. Right. Whatever the bypass trust owns, the proceeds should go there. Right. Try to see if you can confirm that that happened. If so, then you're probably in good shape. Right. If that doesn't happen or you can't confirm it, then you have to consider taking court action. And right. that's a question of do you do it now or later? And if you're not gonna receive anything from the survivor's trust, or if the surviving spouse has just revoked their half of the trust and they put it somewhere else, then, go. then you might as well go. Yeah, except for keep in mind they can draw down principal on the bypass trust. In some cases, that depends on the terms of the trust. They may not have shared the trust with you, so you're in right. the dark, and they're certainly not giving you accountings even though you have a right to them. You start asking for accountings, they're gonna, 
they're not going to be happy about it. So right. you have to figure out, do I want to wait? It's picking poison is what it's doing. Which poison is going to be less right. harmful to you? And it, what rights do you have? What rights do they have? If right. you have the trust document, you can start making those decisions. Without the trust document, it's very difficult. That's right. Uh, one last thing, if you wait till they pass away, uh, you have to keep in mind that there's a, a statute of limitations that mm -hmm. trumps all other open statute of limitations. Uh, all that means is you have one year from the date of death of this spouse to file a lawsuit. You have one year, and it doesn't matter if your typical right under a lawsuit would be two or three or four years or 10 years if they were still living. The one year trumps all statute of limitations and you have one year. Now there's an exception to that rule even, where it could be as short as how long? Uh, four months if somebody opens probate. So if somebody opens probate, now we got 120 days that we're dealing with. So right. people, you know, those are statutes that sneak up really quickly. So, so once somebody passes away, take action quickly. You gotta take action yeah. because there's, there's, there's a, just briefly, you're gonna have to petition for probate, open up a probate estate, you got to file a creditor's claim in that probate estate, and then you're going to need to get your underlying lawsuit filed. That takes time to do those three steps. Yeah, there's a lot to do, and there's nothing more heartbreaking to have somebody call into our office, have a perfectly good claim, and then you find out, oh, somebody passed away two years ago, and the right. statutes are all closed. Correct. It's like you got to go. You got to take action quickly. Yep. Do you have another question, Kayla? We have one more question. What advice would you give to a spouse or an attorney who's about to draw up a trust that disinherits a spouse? So who's the advice going to again? I mean, this is a key question. A spouse or an attorney, right? A spouse, a spouse or, or an attorney who's about to create a trust that disinherits the other spouse. Well, it's interesting. I had a case a while back where a spouse wanted to do that. They wanted to disinherit their other spouse. And so, they did a deed where they transferred half of the property into a trust, and then the trust disinherited the spouse. And the problem with that is that while you're legally married, you cannot segregate out community property. So every piece of property retains a 50-50 characterization. So even if I, take, if I take half of my property and I move it away from an account with my spouse, well, that property I moved is still 50-50, and this property over here is still 50-50. You either have to get a legal separation, you have to file for legal separation if you want to divide the assets, or you have to file for divorce. But if you have a situation where you, you can't get the other spouse to sign off on something, then you have, to, you have to do the best you can. So I would do at least a pour over will into a new trust, leaving the spouse's assets into this new trust, and then that trust would go out the way the spouse wants it. Obviously, the best way to do it if you're going to disinherit a spouse is if you, get, if you could get both spouses on the same page and say, look, I want to leave my half to my kids. You leave your half to your kids. It's equal. It's even. And off you go. But in my experience, that's not easy to do because obviously when you come in and say, I'm going to disinherit you, my spouse, that's when things go bad. Um, the other thing you could do is consider using a bypass trust so that the surviving spouse gets something during their lifetime or a right to live in the residence and then it goes away from them. I think that's a good compromise and it's a good way to get both spices on the same page. Um, so that's another way that I would consider doing it. But if you're going to create a trust just for the spouse and you're going to fund it with community property, uh, that's very difficult to do because you can't segregate it out. Now, if you're going to fund... Uh, 
a, uh, if you're going to create a trust for just one spouse and fund it with separate property, that you can do all day long. That's just a separate property trust. We, we used to do that all the time as part of our estate planning that we would do. Um, but trying to separate out community property without a legal separation or a divorce, is it, you just can't do it. It's pretty tough. And then once it's in the inside of a trust... Well, even if you did like Charles Corral and left a will, it doesn't matter because it's a trust asset and the will yeah. doesn't control a trust asset. Well, and the argument we made in this case, too, is that the spouse had moved 50% of this house into her own trust and then tried to direct it away. 25%? Well, yeah. I'm saying, well, whatever's in that trust is still 50-50. So that means the surviving husband still was entitled to 25% and the other 25% could go that way. And then the 50% that was left outside of the trust that all went to the surviving spouse. So the surviving spouse ended up with 75% because you can't divide assets right. while they're alive. Now, if you put it into a marital, a joint trust with husband and wife, and you either create a bypass trust that lets the spouse live there and then it goes to somebody other than the spouse, or if in the joint trust it says, my half is gonna go to my children and you're not gonna get anything, that's good, you can do that. Uh, but absent something like that, it can be very difficult to just create your own trust and leave your assets your own way unless you own everything in your own name and you can pass it under a will, a pour-over will, into a trust, and it goes through that way. Or even a standalone will in that case. <clears throat> That's true. Yeah, you can just do a standalone will as long as your assets aren't in joint tenancy. Just own your assets as tenants in common with your spouse and then create a will. Yeah, you have to go through probate, but at least you can get your half out. Right. Wow, this was a fun one. I didn't realize how much fun this was going to be. It's complicated stuff. You know, I was talking to Manisha before the show, and she was asking some questions about, can you disinherit your spouse? And I was telling her, how oh, yes, you could, and she was shocked. And so I think a lot of people are shocked to learn about the ins and outs of how this works because when you're not dealing with this every day, all day long, like we are, uh, it's, it's surprising. It is. So is that all the questions we have, Kayla? Yes. Okay. That was quick. I want to thank uh, Kayla and Manisha for helping us out today. They're the ones who go to all the work to set this up and to get all of the questions from our audience and also take questions during the show. You can find a recorded version of our Stand Fight Win live stream on Facebook and YouTube after we're done here. And you can also find a recorded audio-only version on Podbean at podbean.com. So I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you, Stuart.